You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Wherever we look in each and every corner of this world, there are historical cases of monsters. Usually creatures and events that are considered to be pure folklore, legend, an amalgamation of centuries of fables and cautionary tales, warning us to stay away and to fear those dangerous woods and bogs or remote waters, places where monsters were said to get you. The question for us is, which of these monsters told in countless historical tales were possibly real? Indeed, there are some creatures and entities who originate in the unlikeliest of places and with the strangest of origins. Things far from classic imaginings of the snarling dragon in a cave waiting to be slain by the brave and archetypal knight. There are other, stranger, and much more insidious creatures that straddle a line between mischievous demon and pure flesh and blood monster. Sometime in the Middle Ages, along the peaceful countryside of the meandering River Weir, the beginnings of a monster were unwittingly pulled from its sparkling clear waters. Something not at all aligned with the other fauna of the region. A worm. Its origins unknown but its proliferation and destruction, something of legend. Seven years of villages, livestock, and children devoured, and nine generations of one particular family cursed to horrible deaths. Join us on Into the Portal for part one as we discuss the curse of the Lambton Worm. Hello, everybody. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And welcome back into the portal, your gateway to the bizarre. <laughs> yes, indeed. Welcome back, everyone. We have a really exciting historical monster mystery for you guys tonight. Part one of two, in fact. Uh, but before we get into anything, first and foremost, we wanted to welcome some brand new patrons who have joined us, which mm-hmm. was just so amazing, especially in the month of Halloween, October, which is kind of like month of Christmas here at Into the Portal. So Andrew Mutter, thank you so much for joining us as an ancient explorer. Yeah. That was that was awesome to see that pop into the inbox there. So thank you so much. And then also DJ from across the pond over there somewhere in the mm. UK, who's joined us as a paranormal scholar. So thank you guys both so much. 
Uh, fitting for this episode, I guess, hey? Indeed. We're, we're going to be in your neck of the woods there, DJ. Yes, we are. So yeah, no, uh, thanks for joining us on Patreon. The latest episode on there was the Lost Kaiser's Gold of World War One, a sunken treasure in the unlikeliest of places. So that was super fun. So go check mm-hmm. us out on Patreon if you haven't had a chance. All right, should we just jump right into it? Let's do it. So today we are discussing a classic tale, that of a massive, monstrous beast that could have crawled from the depths of hell itself to those who have said to have encountered it, and a creature that terrorized one particular family for at least seven years, and in some cases referenced as as long as nine generations. So that's a long time. So yes, everyone, welcome into the portal, and indeed we are going back in time, so to speak, in search of the possible truth to a tale that has been told for centuries. And a lot of you guys listening will be very familiar with this. And I was surprised, actually, that Amber was so familiar with the case of the Lambton Worm as a youth. Mm -hmm. Because I actually never heard of the story as, like, a young kid. Even though it's one of those ones where it's almost like a Hansel and Gretel. It is. It's up there with those fables. An Aesop's fable, so to speak, almost like that sort of uh, a moral conundrum, so to speak. But right. yeah, no, I, I had this version of it and I have the actual author further in the notes, but I, I, I grew up with this book and it was on my shelf for years and years and it uh, had a very demonic looking yeah. serpent thing on the front of it. It was pretty freaky when you're a little kid. Yeah. So that was my first encounter with the Lampton Worm. Right. I didn't really think that it had much legs, like historically speaking. So diving into it now, was it, it was interesting to see what you can find. Absolutely. And it's just like a lot of those things, like the Pied Piper or some of these other, yeah, like classic cautionary fables or what, whatever you want to call cautionary them. Cautionary tale, yeah. That's cautionary the tale. I was yeah. But there's these nuggets of truth, which is just utterly horrifying because really the originals of a lot of these things are are very, very dark indeed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before we were coddling our children with the Family Channel Network and that type of (laughs) content. It has... uh, Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it just has that same ring as like a stingy jack or something like that. Something you tell your children just to make sure... They're doing the right things, uh, yeah. you know, just keeping them in line and giving them a good dose of fear once in a while, I think was right. probably the best way to do that back in the day. Right. So I'm not surprised, but it's funny. Yeah, we referenced, we've got, there's a lot of different versions that have kind of come up over the generations because obviously it's been around for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's funny you say like at least seven years is one reference, nine generations. I think those are all actually... Um, accurate. I think it plays right. into different parts of the story and the curse that's beset upon them. So, right. yeah, it's it's really cool. Um, oh, let's get into some of the basics, though, just to cover our sure. Cover so, here. what this truly is, at least in my mind, is essentially a dragon case, especially being from the UK. And I feel like that's sort of how it was described. And definitely, the mythology of dragons is ripe in in the United Kingdom and Europe in general. Creatures that we all know so well. So it was sort of an easy thing to pinpoint. And it wasn't until the 1900s you know, even that Europeans wouldn't even see an actual kimono dragon. So these types of things Mm. were totally thought of as, as fiction and fantasy. And then here's a living dinosaur, a living monster. And then people are like, oh, maybe, maybe the story of the Lambton worm or some of these other things were indeed true, (laughs) possibly, right? Maybe. Um, So that's what we're dealing with today. A dragon-like creature, a giant eel-like creature, could this thing truly have existed? And if so, what the hell was it and where the hell did it come from? So yeah, let's get into the basics of the monster. The Lambton worm is just that. It is a 
worm-like entity. Its giant size or possible size and things like that, its attributes are speculations that we'll get into. But like I said, for all intents and purposes, it was considered a dragon-like creature. Well, and let's just clarify here because I think some people might be confused. Worm to dragon. Right. How do you make that jump? Like mm. worm, spelled W-Y-R-M. Yeah. Worm was like kind of one of those weird English, old English words that kind of meant dragon. It was mm-hmm. kind of like a colloquialism, I guess. Eh? And it just, to me gives this, like, it implies this, um, like, this medieval, it just gives it, like, this medieval veneer of, like, a worm crawling from the depths of hell, you know what I mean? And it's it, less, yeah. like, dragon-like today, where it's, yeah. like, in our minds, dragons are, like, you know, like, um, like the Chinese celebration dragons, or, like, dragons mm. from TV, or whatever, like, Komodo dragons. <laughs> yeah, like, how to, how to and, train like, your dragon kind of thing. Yeah, so it's all muddled up. And, and also, you know, serpentine qualities are often associated with the devil. And, like, you can even right. make associations with perhaps the Adam and Eve story and, like, the whole idea of temptation and that type of thing, which I think is oh, yeah. is definitely a, a pillar in the story, too. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely elements of that that we will dissect. I feel it is really important to note, though, that the origin of this story happens at a riverside. And so this very aggressive, unknown atrocity, as we will call it, is also allegedly semi-aquatic. So that really bleeds into some weird speculations here. But it is indeed responsible, as the legends go, for a reign of terror in the county of Durham, England, that occurred sometime throughout the Middle Ages, and like we said, lasted for as long as seven years to a decade or even more, depending on where we're looking. And despite it being referenced as a fairy tale or a mere fable, the Lambton Worm still remains one of these most enduring dragon or monster legends in European folklore and in, in honestly, human history, because it did end up being this picture book for children that was just so widely distributed. Yeah, Western history. Western history, yes, of course. (laughs) So let's talk about Durham a little bit, because this is where this all happened. Historically, Durham was a really important religious site situated on the northeast of uh, the of the UK island. And it was an important defensive uh, fort for various different groups throughout the history there. The name Durham comes from the old English word for hill and dun, and then Norse uh, for island. This is from uh, historic.uk. This is a quote here I pulled from their website as well, just to kind of give a little bit more context to Durham, where we're looking for this monster legend reads as follows. Situated high on a hill and protected by the river on three sides, Durham was an important in defense against the Scots invading English lands. The cathedral and castle were built together by the community of Benedictine monks who wanted a monumental shrine for St. Cuthbert and a place to live for the Bishop of Durham. St. Cuthbert. What a name. (laughs) I like that. It's like Professor Cuthbert. We had a reference to Cuthbert calculus in the last (laughs) episode, I think, right? (laughs) That's pretty cool. Like, I'm sorry, I had to Google this, like a um, Google map it just to see, get my my bearings, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. it is kind of an interesting way that the river meanders and creates this almost like a peninsula type thing and if it's how you're describing where it's on this hillside that makes sense obviously just because obviously rivers run in the lowest areas but if you look at it though it kind of has this really interesting like i want to go there personally like i don't know i don't know if anyone listening here is from around there has visited durham that would actually be well we've got our new patron dj who (laughs) may or may not be in the in the area perhaps i wonder if you can stay in the castle 
That would be cool. In Durham Castle. Oh, it's a four-star hotel. Oh, my gosh. There you go. So you don't have to stay at the Travelodge, which is quite a bit further away. Stay That's at Durham look. Castle. Even though that looks quite quaint, too. Those are your options, the so Travelodge or Durham Castle. <laughs> the former home of the Lambton Worm. Radisson Blue Hotel in Durham, which okay. is also a four-star hotel. Mm-hmm. We absolutely need to get our asses over to the UK to try <laughs> yeah. to do some on-the-ground covering of these legends this and hauntings and things like that. Yeah. I mean, Lep Castle, we still haven't... Uh, Oh man, got to get over there too. I'm already booking us a site. I mean, it is absolutely <laughs> a room. not a site. A room. <laughs> booking us a site. <laughs> I'm looking at the site. I'm booking a room. No, see, but see, look how infatuated with it you are already, just yeah. looking at it. And that's sort of the point I was trying to make with this oh, too. Yeah. Is like this is a place that was extremely significant both for mm. warfare, also superstition, clearly religious beliefs, and all of this having this sort of deep seated connection to the landscape there, which we've talked about a lot with. The ancient United Kingdom, mm-hmm. even going back to the Rollwright Stones. Maze Howe. And, Maze Howe. Yeah. These types of things. So it's a place of both regular bloodshed on the battle side, uh, and then also potentially witchcraft and other things too, which actually does play into mm-hmm. this story with Mr. Lampton and the Lampton Worm. The story, of course, is that of this creature. So let's get back to that. Mm-hmm. Wherever it came from, we are going to speculate on that. But it was said to have terrorized not only uh, the poor Lambton family, but also an entire village and the countryside surrounding this Mm. area for a very, very long time. But was this simply a Christian morality tale that we all know so well? A classic cautionary tale, if you will, very similar to something like that of the bunyip, Mm. uh, you know, don't go into the bogs type of thing. But to Mm -hmm. me, it's a little bit different. And that's what makes this so interesting and what makes it have even more of these sort of grains of potential truth of covering up and or there being just very slight evidence of a, a very real biological creature. So yeah, now yeah. I, I think I think that's a perfect segue to maybe get into, yeah, some more of the actual origins of the beast. Mm-hmm. Yes, because we, we kind of loosely reference, we are sort of based in and around the 14th century here. Uh, we'll call this medieval times just for... Generalities, yeah. And yeah. so to speak. Well, we can get into the roots of the word medieval. I which, think we should define it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we got medi, which obviously means middle, and then ev, which means age. So medieval really means of the Middle Ages. And uh, yeah, I love how we had to <laughs> include that in. Well, I feel like it's important to say just because it's like it's essentially just between the Roman control and then the Renaissance, and there's a lot of things going on in the UK, obviously. Well, this is the time of magic and not a time of, yeah, like it's pre-scientific revolution. There's a lot of, there's a lot of just general changes in the air and imagine a lot of uh, superstitions like Absolutely, you already said right for sure. and then of course if we're talking about this particular place like this is probably one of those epicenters where there's just a lot happening but anyways this time was where we get some of the earliest versions and this legend obviously has many, many, many different authors and was passed down orally in many accounts. But one of the earliest published versions was by uh, a man named Robert Surtees. And he is a very well-known historian from the Durham area. And he recorded one of these traditional oral versions. And this was recounted by one Elizabeth Cockburn of Offerton. And then he did later include this legend in a second volume of his work, History and Antiquities of the County Palatine of Durham. 
Durham, which was published in 1820. So again, this is quite a bit later, but it all comes back to these references that sort of originated probably within the 14th century, maybe a little earlier, who knows. (laughs) But let's get into some of the actual story. Andrew, all right, I'll just give you some credit here because uh, this was kind of a funny little header you had. The worm cometh. Dot, yeah, dot, I didn't even dot. remember putting that in the doc, but I, I thought you added that. <laughs> maybe actually, the worm added it. <laughs> maybe there's more to this maybe, than we think. because I don't remember writing that in there. Me neither, <laughs> at all. But in the traditional folktales, this dreaded Lampton worm made its first appearance when a young man, an heir to the Lampton Hall and Manor, one Mr. John Lampton, decided to skip a traditional Sunday mass um, in Brugford Chapel. In some cases, it's actually referred to as Sabbath, which I think would be on a Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. Is that how that works? I mean, yeah, we should look mm. into that when we really break this all down, but, but I think it's okay what, for now. I know. I think what that just comes down to is just who was who was passing it along to whoever, right? Like, mm. what was their context? Were they going to Sabbath? Or were they going to Sunday Mass? You know what I mean? Could be either or. Mm. The whole thing is that he didn't go to church that day. And this was in order to spend the morning doing one of his favorite pastimes, which was fishing in the nearby Weir River. So apparently Mass was very, very long back then. <laughs> yeah, Because <apparently. laughs> John spent about several hours at the river. Right. And hours and hours, patiently waiting like a good fisherman will. And then he was finally caught off guard when he felt his hook suddenly snag on something large. Mm -hmm. And this was like a babbling brook we're talking about here. It's not like a huge raging river. So whatever he caught was like unnaturally large is kind of how the story implies. Yeah, like a real prize winning fish. Real prize winner. It was so strong because whatever it was almost tore his fishing pole in half or in some accounts right in the water. Right, right out of his hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so for several minutes, the tales go, John Lampton wrestled with his catch and after much effort, he finally hauled it up and out of the water. But it was not what he was expecting. No. He was not some gigantic fish or something else he might take and cook for dinner that night. But uh, instead, he stood in complete shock as he stared at a very tiny, weird, glistening, black, eel-like creature. Yes. A worm. So he pulls out a worm. And (laughs) This worm put up the fight of the century. Like Like a small... Teeny little thing. Eel-like, writhing on the rocks, like clearly like... Mm-hmm. helpless looking worm creature that just put up a f- the fight of the yeah exactly in some versions um they say that it was no bigger than his thumb and others are That's a little crazy. more vague they describe it as a snake worm like thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right so the story goes that john stared at it for several minutes as it wriggled and struggled on the ground and not knowing what else to do he thought maybe i should just return this to the water from whence it came But just as he was about to toss his strange catch back into the river, he was stopped by an elderly man passing by who requested to see the creature. The old man was astonished by the sight of this odd thing, and according to the legend, he blessed himself with the sign of the cross for protection and continued to scorn John, who was only a teenager at the time, Mm -hmm. for neglecting to attend the church mass. The old man warned him not to release the beast back into the river, 
stating that a great misfortune would befall him if his advice was not heeded. Ominous. Yes. Um, In some other versions, John is said to have boasted to the man that he had caught the devil himself (laughs) and throws the worm down a well, forgetting all about it for years and years. In other cases, he does throw it back into the river. Into the river, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Which is and two very different things. But we'll get it, into it is, it is. It's kind of interesting. So there's some tangents that start to sort of occur in mm-hmm. the different versions here. So we'll kind of, we'll cover them all as we go. For sure. So young John, you know, as youth will do, tended to forget all about this. Went on for years. He actually left the county of Durham and went on the Crusades for, I think it was about seven years. Unbeknownst to him, this devilish worm was not going to go away. Right. <laughs> oh, wow. You've got the Halloween laugh out and everything for the end of that. Yeah. It's so, yeah. So that's, that's the, that's the meat of the origin of this worm. The first encounter between John Lambton and this creature that he's clearly not afraid of at the time. And like you said, like some accounts as small as a thumb, which, you know, like if you're pulling that out of a river, you would, you would probably think like it's a leech. <laughs> Or something, or it's yeah. a, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of just a, a weird, uh, weirdly formed fish-like creature or something, yeah. or, a, or a frog or something, right? Like, at they that time... They have lots like, of eels in and, and eels. the UK, and so that's the you thing. probably just think it's an eel or something. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. they're baking them into pies. There was a... Really? It's a massive... And still today, it's a massive part of the, of the mm-hmm. culinary experience in the UK. Yeah. But I guess what I'm getting at here is, like, before we, before we continue on, and we do have a quick promo break coming up, but... It's just so mm-hmm. interesting. The who is this old man? Yeah. Why is he there? Why mm-hmm. aren't you at church, Mister Old Man? Mm-hmm. If if this is something, if this is you're scorning John for not yeah, being there, exactly. what are you doing out here? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. That was one of my big questions. So is he more of just like a a messenger? He's not yeah. actually a a, a a human. Exactly. Or something of that nature? There's two figures that I think could be that. They could even be the same figure that appears in different forms. Because mm-hmm. we have this old man who's very mysterious at the very beginning of this story, and then the very end of the story, we have another elderly individual who I will not name right now sure. come in but I have another question too yeah so this old man yeah that's a really good one why the heck aren't you at church right now but then the old man warns him not to release this beast back into the river what are you supposed to do with it yeah. are you supposed to kill it are you supposed to keep it as a pet are you supposed to like encage it in something so that it's like I don't understand right. what his alternate is. I think, I think that, I, I mean... <laughs> what would you do? I mean, presumably you, you'd think he's implying that you you stomp on this thing and you you kill it because it is okay. clearly something that has now been... Almost as if it's been pulled out from another dimension, like literally pulled out of the depths of hell, <laughs> and now it's yours. It's like this is your demon now. Oh, yeah. It's sort That's of the actually... It's almost as if it's a literal manifestation of a curse. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And... I mean, I don't know how many of our listeners out there believe in literal curses or things like that. I mean, we've talked hex or, or cursed objects like hexam heads or things like that, but I do. And that, so that's that. just throwing that out there before we can continue on. Maybe yeah. that's what's working here. I but, think, I think, yeah, that's, that's a good little segue there. Sure. Before we get into more of these gruesome details, let's just stop for a quick ad break. Whoa. Whoa. 
Do you feel as though there are things in your life holding you back or that you could benefit from talking things out with a licensed professional counselor? BetterHelp.com is making it easier than ever to get on track with your mental health and connect with affordable therapists online from the convenience of your phone or laptop. BetterHelp.com is safe and private, allowing you to get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp.com is available on multiple platforms and across the globe, so you have the help you need wherever you find yourself. They make it easy to assess your individual needs and match you with a licensed counselor wherever you are in the world. Just check out the testimonials posted daily on their site by people just like you. You can get started right away and begin communicating with a specialized counselor within 24 hours of signing up. This isn't your dog or your best friend. This is a licensed professional that will communicate with you via weekly scheduled video or phone sessions. And BetterHelp.com allows you to send a message anytime you need to with timely and helpful responses in return. BetterHelp.com offers a secure, convenient way to access affordable online therapists from the comfort of your living room, office, or wherever you find yourself these days. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. So please, if you feel like you could benefit from this, check it out at betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com and use discount code PORTAL, spelled P-O-R-T-A-L, to get 10% off your first month. Start living your best life and take charge of your mental health along with over 1 million other people. Again, that's betterhelp.com with discount code PORTAL. Okay, so let's chat a little bit about who the hell the Lambton family actually was, because if this story was true, we're going to need to try to find John, the original John Lambton, who allegedly yanked this creature out of the river. And according to Britannica, houseofnames.com, a few other sources like that, one of the first records of a John Lambton was from around 1150 CE, Lord of Lambton, and then throughout the, his- throughout the years after that, there are many other Lamptons, a lot of Johns, and a few other names as well. The next one that I was able to find was uh, a Mr. John Lampton in 1314, who was again Lord of Lampton. And like I said, there's a ton of other names that could have been associated with this. And we know that throughout Europe, Germany, France, these places have pretty deep-seated like worm and dragon myths and legends as, as well. And there's variations of the name Lampton spelled L-A-M-B-T-O-N, uh, Lampton, just L-A-M-T-O-N, Lamptone, T-O-N-E. So hmm. maybe it's an amalgamation of a few different accounts of creatures. And in fact, there was actually a fun connection to Canada, <laughs> potentially as well, uh, a descendant of the original John Lampton, potentially, because there's actually a John George Lampton, the first Earl of Durham, who uh, from uh, 1792 to 1840 was uh, actually the governor general of, or sorry, what is it? Colonial administrator of Canada, governor general and high commissioner. So he was basically like, yeah, referred to as the Canadian history text as Lord Durham. And hmm. he was a British Whig statesman and had connection to the colonial, colonial ties to Canada. Interesting. We didn't really, did you get into any of the whole like Lampton manner? Like, because obviously like a lordship, 
I can actually remember the whole uh, rigmarole with like, you know, like lords, ladies, uh, sirs. Um, oh my gosh, it goes up, right? There's earls, there's, yeah. you know, all these different types of things. And we've referenced but, a couple here too, earl, lord. Yeah, right? Like Lord Durham is a pretty lowly position, I think, but it obviously still right. is, it's nobility to a certain degree. Well, it's like Lord Lucan. I mean, Lord Lucan was a... Well, exactly. So I'm just trying to think here, because I was looking at the Durham area again, Mm -hmm. and just, like, you don't see any reference to actual, like, Lampton itself or anything like that, but maybe I'm just not seeing it come up here, like, because obviously that happens quite a bit on Google Maps. (laughs) No, it absolutely does. And that's absolutely something that we are not necessarily entirely saving for part two, but, like, really digging into the meat of the truth of all this, and then and in this mm. first part, sort of teasing you all with the with the monster. Yeah. But, okay. I mean, we definitely do need to look at the house, mm-hmm. the castle. Yeah, the Lord of Lampton, because it is interesting to see that if he was obviously this one, this Canadian connection here, George, John George Lampton, mm-hmm. um, he was referred to as Lord Durham, which obviously is directly connected to the County Durham. County that Durham, we talking the about origins today. of the story. Absolutely. I wonder if he has any um, living relatives that we could get a hold of to see if he ever talked about the Lampton worm at all. <laughs> that would be actually kind of Of course, this is like hundreds of years removed, but you have yeah. to wonder where it's like, yeah, you share the last name if this is such a famous story. Like mm-hmm. if it would be something really make sure that the Lampton families are telling it to their kids. Well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe. You know what I mean? Or there might be some sort of pride in it. Or again, just the continuation of the sort of moral fable because sure. this family goes on to be uh, cursed, I guess is the, uh, the yeah. word. But let's, yeah, let's get into some more of this juiciness here. Let's, we've been teasing you guys. Let's get into some of the gruesome details. We got some early descriptions of the beast here. What do you, what do you got for me, Andrew? Well, what do I have for you here? I suppose <laughs> I can try to, uh, to Jazz it up. <laughs> take your appetite away, I guess, or what it, what have you. I mean, it's honestly not as gory as one might expect with the name worm or as, as gross, I guess the word, the name implies mm-hmm. it's kind of nasty. But it was described early by Mr. Lampton as having a head reminiscent to that of a salamander, which, again, is like a Mm -hmm. creature we know of that we can point to. Its head was then complete with needle-sharp teeth and allegedly Hmm. nine holes along each side of its mouth. Weird. Which is kind of strange. Hmm. So some sort of like a dragon-like snout with strange breathing holes on the front of it. Yeah, like... Some sort of gills, potentially, because this thing was sort of semi-aquatic. I mean, he did pull it out of the river, after mm-hmm. all. But hmm. the animal was said to be uh, obviously extremely aggressive, and it even secreted this sticky, inky-like substance uh, that was uh, poisonous. And uh, it was all over its outer epidermis. And in some of the uh, legends I even stumbled on, it could, like spit this or throw its slime with a flick of its tail type thing uh, and controlling its prey that way. Weird. Almost like a death worm. I know it does remind me of a death worm, the fluid. It's not like electrical though. It's not electrical, no. Mm-hmm. That was an addition later on. That was pretty for the For the death. But, but again, we speculated for a long time on the believability of the origins of a creature like the death worm. And this is a sort sandworm. of a sandworm. <laughs> it's obviously way out there in the Gobi, a little more remote than in Durham. <laughs> but this is a long time ago, and maybe it was a something similar. An adjacent cousin, perhaps, you might say. <laughs> but back to the story. So John either kicks this thing back into the river or throws it back into the river, or in sometimes or in some cases takes it back to 
a well, right? A, yeah, a he, like, property. tosses it in a well. Which no, is no, no, it's like really the community well. Oh, mm-hmm. real nice, John. Let's right? throw this unknown, disgusting, slimy creature down a drinking well. I don't know. I know, right? Not a good idea, but... Hmm. Right. <laughs> in any event, where, wherever he did end up putting it, the worm was clearly ready to grow beyond its tiny thumb thumbnail size or thumb size because it gets immensely large pretty quickly and, like I just said before, becomes poisonous in many cases. The villagers of this local village here at Durham start noticing that livestock are going missing and discover that the worm is now what appears to be fully grown at his because it has reached this enormous size, large enough to coil itself around a local hill as many as seven times. And we'll reference this hill again Mm -hmm. in a sec. And this is where I feel like we really get into this dragon mythology, like the dragon in the lair. And here's the description of this thing. Coiling around a hill, we are now officially out of the water. It is a terrestrial creature terrorizing Mm -hmm. the livestock and the villagers of County Durham, England. What do you make of that? (laughs) I know, right? It does bring to mind a lot of, like, classic tropes associated with dragon mythology, and especially when it comes to UK folklore and stuff like that. Like, And this is by no means uh, a standalone, right? Like, there are many tales from many different counties all across England and, and beyond, like, in the UK and the Isles that talk about these worms. And to me, when I hear that, when I'm like, this this worm has grown immensely large, mm-hmm. the well's poisonous, like, the worm itself is poisonous, kind of what I... I almost picture it almost like being, like, a... Again, like, a literal manifestation of fear and evil. Right. And it's feeding on livestock. It's feeding on, in some cases, even I, I saw, like, children are included in those of stats, course. too. <laughs> like that like you don't want of course but it it almost reminds me of like it where Mm. it's like it's is it literally feeding off of them or are people starting to leave because they're so afraid you know there's that kind of thing too totally but it's very interesting and if this thing was actually preying upon livestock that's and what that that comparison you just made is really interesting too like like yeah like it as an example right it's Mm -hmm. this physical manifestation of fear and obviously in the middle ages were they're working with totally different perspectives of like what that would have been. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's it's a lot of the symbolism that would have been soaked in Christian mythology. They weren't watching Hollywood Hollywood movies like because no. that's just it. It's like a like if you believe in demons and there's a d- demonic entity that wants to terrorize and feed off your fear, we might nowadays be nowadays be a lot more afraid of like a possession, like exorcist type stuff, like the exorcism of so and so. And here's the head spinning around, and it's very much like the um, uncanny because it's like it's you're clearly not a human, but you're in this human's body or human form or whatever. Whereas back then, it's like maybe that wouldn't have even been recognized. Like mm. I'm sure there were possessions and oh, yeah. things like that, definitely. But it's yeah, like yeah. they would have been more afraid of dragons than we are now. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, it's like an no, I, I think I think you're you're hitting on something there when you speak to again. We've already kind of touched on this too. The idea of like serpentine uh, figures in folklore tales are often associated with the devil. Yeah, uh, good and evil, light and dark is often like a very prominent trope. But we're in talking a lot of these. literally though, like it yeah, is something it's, it's like a it's a literal or... interpretation. Yeah, totally. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Penshaw. A hill is the one I was talking about there where the worm allegedly wrapped around it seven times and the marks right. can actually still be seen in the hill itself. <laughs> cool. Which is pretty cool. So we'll definitely have to get there. And with all of this 
it is so difficult to pin down. I think that's why we mentioned the, the silly thing earlier. We're like, why are we talking about the definition of Middle Ages? But I mean, it is some sometime in this period, and it is difficult to pin down. There's early field maps of Durham dating to around 17, the 1730s, between 1730, 1750. These were uncovered by a researcher named Audrey Fletcher. Um, but they show these topographical features of Worm Hill and some sort of symbolism that implies that this story was well known in the 1730s mm-hmm. and that makes sense. marked on the map, uh, which, which yeah, which which totally lines up and totally makes sense. Well, yeah, like because even the first um, the first publication date that I noted that right. was 1820. So you know, like it would have been well established, like yeah. for centuries before that. So you have to wonder how long before is I guess is what I'm getting at there. How long of these? If you're because you're trying to find if something like a creature like this would have actually existed. Yeah, and like pinpoint sort of more the origin of the story because all we have is sort of the first writings of it, which are clearly well after. And I think, again, this will play into the part two more because it does play into, I think, a character that you already mentioned, a historically existing um, Lord Lambton that may or may not have actually been involved in an order that could have actually had a, a historical documented sort of fight with the yeah, monster type thing right but we're saving that for part two for sure i think we should get into the story more like yeah just to close that off just to, just to tie that tie that up i guess the, the reason we were mentioning the hill at all is because it is ends up being this sort of transition marker from the river or the well where we have this aqua, semi-aquatic creature and then a quote from the book you mentioned earlier actually i just pulled up here the history and antiquities of the county mm-hmm. of palatine of durham or whatever it says here that uh the hill, once possessed by an enormous serpent that wound its horrid body around there, so essentially made it its home, I guess mm-hmm. is what I'm getting at. The Lambton worm left potentially its origins in the river or the well, and then very classically, like a dragon in the cave, ends up worming its way into into that hill. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just feel like that's that's just fascinating to me. If, if, if we're searching for something real, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, so sorry, you're tracking the progression. So we go from the river to the well to the hill. (laughs) (laughs) When you say it like that, it sounds like Andrew's going, the cow says, moo. I don't know. One plus one equals Just in summation here, just so we can get on with the story. Because there's about half the story we haven't covered yet, which I would love to get into here. Let's do it. It's very cool. And I, you didn't actually read this whole quote here from that book, The History and Antiquities of the County Palatine of Durham, Volume 1, which was published in... 1785 and then the volume two would have been later like in the 1820 mark that i Mm -hmm. mentioned earlier but he says here worm hill tradition says was once possessed by an enormous serpent that wound its horrid body around the base that it destroyed much provision and used to infest the lambton estate till some hero in that family engaged it cased in armor set with razors but could it be true Right. So this is cool. And and that, again, is setting the scene for this, uh, I would call it the act three, I guess, of the story. Because there's three distinct sort of sections. There's the yeah. section with John in the very beginning, the whole discovery of the beast. That's kind of one sort of act, I would say. The mm-hmm. second act would be John's absent. The county, the villagers are dealing with this thing. And yeah. his dad is dealing with this thing. Which yeah. is kind of nuts because his dad ends up being basically drained of his entire wealth because he's trying to satiate this beast by giving it his best cow's milk. So right. the stories go. Right. And so by the time John actually gets home, this is act three. So, okay. 
So before we get into Act 3, yeah, so like we said, John's off fighting the Crusades. He stays there for about seven years. While he's away, this strange little worm creature, like we've said, has grown into this monstrosity <laughs> and is unable to be satiated or dealt with with the local villagers. Right. So it's ravishing the countryside. Ravishing? It was <laughs> ravaging. Ravishing. <laughs> ravaging crops. It's, it's, yeah, taking animals, even humans, perhaps. And then... Yeah, it's interesting because the locals try many different methods, right, of dealing with this worm, giving it these regular tributes, so to speak, of milk and of livestock. But the entire village suffers from this. And after seven years, they've got nothing left, right? This It, it does remind me of, like, again, right, the devil will take and take and take and take until you have nothing left. It's, like, such an interesting sort of metaphor. Yeah. But a number of brave villagers did come forward to try and kill the beast, um, which is interesting because this thing is almost like a Medusa, where if you cut a chunk off of it, it simply reattaches the missing piece. It's almost like either it magically regrows, like a whole like limb regrows, or right. it reattaches. That's kind of a weird way to <laughs> phrase it. Well, I mean, we obviously... Okay, well, con- continue on. I've got points to make, but mm-hmm. I will make them at the end. But yeah, so this goes on for a long while until the beast actually decides to wander down to the Lampton estate. And so this is when John's father is tasked with sedating this beast and offering it enormous amounts of milk to the point where he obviously becomes impoverished. This is where we get Act Three. Where... I'm just no, I'm I'm just like they're just giving. He just gives them all his milk, all his cows. The villagers have now given away. I'm just I'm just picturing it all in my head, right? Like them carting all this stuff over to clearly what is like a very like intelligent almost like sentient thing that's well, like yeah the that's only like thing... demanding these sacrifices to the monster yeah like are these like written requests is this thing talking to them <laughs> right. is there like some sort of like verbalization or and is does it, this occur you know, after it's we don't like, get any of those details no we don't because it's like it described as like attacking livestock villagers say livestock's going missing even children are going missing so this thing is all is acting straight up as like a cryptozoological monster at first and then they sort of realize what they're dealing with i guess and then they're like oh we need to just it's taking all this stuff let's just feed it we need to just feed it we need to pass well they probably recognize if they do that then their children are going missing you know things like that i suppose you have limited options i guess so okay so that okay so now we're into act three john returns home (laughs) and it's not a rosy return no no so after fighting the crusades for seven long years or more he ends up having to take up the task of dispatching this beast you gotta deal with your problems man no one else could deal with it while he was gone no one there wasn't one person i guess they were mostly fighting the crusades the fighters maybe who knows we did have neighboring knights apparently come over and they were dispatched so to speak um and none were successful so we get john entering back into the story here and i guess no one thought to consult the witch just the neighborhood witch as it comes into play here so this is the second mysterious figure that i mentioned right off the top of the bat where i'm like okay we get this mysterious old man warning him about the dangers of the worm and throwing it into the river mm-hmm. now we get a witch who's what just living in her hut in the woods just waiting for someone to be like hey guys i actually have the solution here but no one's coming to say <laughs> like anyways and she obviously isn't going out of her way to help him out so john decides he'll consult with her and she ends up telling him how to fight the beast 
and it involves special armor. So in some cases, it's referred to as spikes. In that other uh, 1785 publication, they referred to it as like razors, uh, armor covered in razors. And she tells him that he must lead this worm beast to the river from whence it was caught in order to slay it. She also states he must kill the first living thing he sees after killing the worm, or else he and his family will be cursed for nine generations to horrible deaths and to die not warm in their beds, mm. is how it's phrased. So that's kind of mm, ominous, I'd say. I'm, you know, I think it's kind of weird to think of anyone wanting to die in a certain way. Like, I'm almost like, I guess dying in your bed would be the way to go. <laughs> I don't know. Well, comparatively to a horrible death at the hands of a giant worm beast or something like that might be comparatively a better option. I guess so. So this is where we get John and his father. They decide to concoct a plan wherein John will do exactly as the witch has said. He will cover himself in the special armor and he will lead the beast down to the river in order to slay it. Once he's killed the beast, he will sound his horn, signaling to his father to release the family dog so that John may kill it and defy the curse once and for all. <laughs> so the night comes, and John is successful in killing this worm. However, it is unfortunate that his father, in his haste, forgets to release the dog and runs forth to congratulate his son instead, becoming the first living thing that John sees. So what does John do? What would you do, Andrew? <laughs> what would Andrew do? <laughs> I mean, what wouldn't you do, I guess, what is sort of do? more of the answer here. Wouldn't you do? Well, so you Probably. wouldn't kill your dad. Yeah. So, but if you don't kill your dad, you're cursing nine generations of your family in succession to well. horrible deaths. So it's shouldn't you just mercilessly kill your father and spare the lives of all your successive generations? Yeah. Easier said than done, I think, is probably tough. the... Uh, Pretty tough. It's a real Sophie's choice here. I know. Folks. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Exactly. So this is where we get John making the decision to refuse to kill his father, and the curse is set to befall on the Lamptons. Right. Nine generations of horrible deaths. Yeah. Mm. Which is where we get to the point where, yeah, we need to go and next the next thing we bring you guys are those horrible deaths mm-hmm. and some of the speculation on if it <laughs> was curse. indeed a, the curse or the real creature because now we're dealing with multiple elements of the paranormal here mm-hmm. at first we have a actually there's almost three in my mind like there's the cryptozoological element of potentially something being pulled out of a river or what wherever it may be that's then a monstrous entity of some kind there's the element of it being demonic or possibly mm-hmm. elemental-like, something mm-hmm. from in between. Feeding off evil or something. Yeah, or like, mm-hmm. I mean, not even through a Christian lens with like demonic. I feel like every time I say that, that's mm. what's implied. But I'm talking like like evil dead, like ancient Sumerian, like darkness, like mm. things of the earth that were well before Christianity was formed or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Could it be something like that? Some sort of pagan evil or something. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's just now manifesting and feeding off of this the fear of the village and then of course the family itself but then you've got the figures of the old man and the witch the woman where those are just such easy classic fable throw-ins you know what i mean the old man the witch in the woods 
But could these have actually been a little bit more definable figures, even in a folkloric sense, like a Merlin from King Arthur? Mm-hmm. These are the things that we are going to try to bring to you guys for part two, which will be actually, I think we're going to try to get that out next week. Mm-hmm. Do this nice little back-to-back for you guys here yeah, you know. in this two-part series. Because obviously we are just skimming the surface right now. This is very much a tease and... You know, we actually found very serendipitously a, a copy of the fable in a bookstore, used bookstore in on Vancouver Island recently of the Lampton Worm. No, we didn't actually. That was the Pied Piper of Oh, Hamlin. sorry, it was the Pied Piper. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. That's right. So we need to we need to find that one and <laughs> add it to the collection. I actually did find the original version of the book that I had as a child. Did you really? Okay. Yeah, and I think I went to order it, but I'm not sure if I actually did. No, I have to go back in our right. our Amazon. So everyone go dig through your old books as a, your hmm. old kid books. If you have access to them, because I'd be very curious to see how many of you listen, listening really knew this story. Um, There's a few different versions, too. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find the author of the one that I read, and I can't seem to find it. Oh, well. I'll have That's for you okay. guys next time. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll bring it up for, next, for part two. Now, before we leave, before we end off this part one here, I do you have any any, any final thoughts, any final speculations here before we get into into part two? Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Just t- catching you totally off guard. I, I am very excited to get more into some of the family history of these Lamptons. I want to get into more of the history of Durham and that whole area. And uh, let's dig up some more worms. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's Amber's tease. I guess I'll sign off by saying that uh, people get lost in the minutia of these stories where there's a dragon involved, there's a witch involved, and therefore it's clearly just a fable. And I can't wait to bring some more hard nuggets of truth to you guys next week and uh, drum up some belief in this historic monster, possibly being very real. Hard nuggets of truth. Wow, that's a tall order. (laughs) (laughs) That's a tall order, Neuberg. You're going to have to give me a couple of weeks off. (laughs) All right, folks. Well, thank you so much for being here with us uh, and listening to this part one of The Lambton Worm. And until next time, on Into the Portal. Your gateway to the bizarre. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.